Welcome to Finance Against Slavery and Trafficking, the podcast. Each episode, we'll take you on a deep dive into the connections between global finance and modern slavery and human trafficking. We'll look at all the different ways that the financial sector can harness its leverage to end modern slavery, forced labor, and human trafficking, and bring you a roundup of all the latest developments from ESG regulation to revealing research. Human trafficking is happening for one reason, which is money. And financial institutions can actually monitor how the money is flowing. Nobody else can do that. So financial institutions can actually prevent human trafficking, detect human trafficking, assist law enforcement to make their case stronger. So eventually conviction rates can go much higher and can also give a second chance for survivors by offering them new bank accounts and or if money is recovered from the investigation, the banks can help to assist to return that money back into the hands of survivors. So no other entity can do all of the above, only financial sectors. This is why I believe that it is so crucial for financial institutions and financial sector in general to come and join us on our journey to fight human trafficking in our lifetime. That was Timmy Nagy survivor of modern slavery and human rights activist, inviting financial institutions to come on a journey to fight human trafficking in our lifetime. This week, to start our journey, we're following the money. We're learning how the profits from forced labour and modern slavery find their way into the financial system and what happens to them once they're in that giant laundry. We'll hear from financial sector regulators and banks about how they're learning to find the footprints of this hidden crime. Modern slavery is not just about the proceeds of crime arising from people being forced to do things that are illegal on their face. It's also about the use of coercion, fraud and deception inside what otherwise look like legitimate employment contracts. It's about people being forced to work against their will in what looks like perfectly legitimate business. When we ask banks to follow the money back to modern slavery, we're asking them to do something a bit different from following the money in, say, drug trafficking cases. There, banks are looking for the telltale signs of the drug business hidden inside money laundering transactions. That often involves high volume, low denomination transactions, so it's feasible to figure out what the pattern looks like. We've all been taught by Hollywood over the last couple of decades how this works, learning from Stringer Bell on The Wire, from Walter and Skylar White on Breaking Bad, and most recently from Marty and Wendy Bird on Ozark. With modern slavery and human trafficking, though, we're asking banks to find coercive employment arrangements inside what may otherwise be an entirely legitimate business. So what if the use of coercion is only there in a small part of the industry, which is otherwise legitimate? Or what if it's so far down a business's supply chain, somewhere at the edge of the informal economy at the 14th or 15th or 16th tier of suppliers, that the bank simply can't see it through its usual client onboarding processes or the anti-money laundering systems that it uses on its payment platforms. What are banks supposed to do then? Well, that's a question with very real, 
financial and material implications as one of Australia's largest banks learned the hard way last year. In 2018, to much fanfare, the Federal Parliament of Australia adopted a comprehensive Modern Slavery Act. It was seen as a game-changer for business in the country and the region, requiring companies with an annual consolidated revenue of $100 billion Australian dollars to take steps to identify and address modern slavery risks in their operations and business relationships. The Act built on disclosure regimes adopted in other jurisdictions, including California and the United Kingdom. While the British government has been a little vague about how disclosure obligations apply to financial entities, in Australia, the government issued official guidance making clear that the Aussie Act extended to bank lending, to pension and retirement savings, and indeed to other investment activities. So the events of late November 2019 came as something of a shock. On 26 of November, the Australian financial crimes regulator Austrac alleged that Australia's oldest bank, Westpac, with annual revenues of around 8.3 billion Australian dollars, had breached Australian anti-money laundering laws more than 23 million times. And it said, some of those breaches related to modern slavery. Here's Austrac chief executive Nicole Rose. Westpac failed to pass on information about the origin of international funds transfers and keep records as required by law. And Westpac failed to carry out appropriate customer due diligence on high-risk transactions to the Philippines and Southeast Asia concerning known financial indicators relating to potential child exploitation risks. Child exploitation risks. That was a polite way of saying that Westpac's payment systems had been used by men in Western countries to pay for children in the Philippines to perform sex acts against their will, to pay for human trafficking or, under the terms of the Australian Act, modern slavery. The impact was immediate. Westpac's share price lost almost 10% in the next few days, the CEO was gone within a couple of weeks and the board chairman announced his early retirement. Westpac still awaits the resulting fine, but it's expected to be the largest in Australian corporate history. Unfortunately, Westpac is not the first financial institution to find itself in this kind of situation. Western Union, for example, reached a $94 million US dollar settlement with the Arizona State Attorney General earlier this decade relating to breaches of anti-money laundering laws tied to human trafficking, and was also fined a further $60 million by New York State authorities in 2018. The 2014 settlement in Arizona did have one happy result. It led to an innovative partnership between Western Union, law enforcement, and other money service businesses to pool resources to follow the money back to human trafficking. I spoke to Liz Barrick to find out more. My name is Liz Barrick. I am the Deputy Director of the Southwest Border Track, which is the Southwest Border Transactional Record Analysis Center. And thanks so much for having me. So from about 2011 through to the current time, we have been receiving transactional data from 
the company Western Union, but through the efforts to target money laundering activity that wasn't just occurring through Western Union, but also other companies like MoneyGram and RIA and Seagay and several of the other much smaller money remittance companies, they were committed to work with the attorney general's office to try and target that activity. And so as track has grown, we receive data through a legal process. It's through subpoenaed efforts by both the Arizona attorney general's office and federal agencies to receive that transactional data. And then it goes into a database that is accessed by law enforcement across the United States to investigate and target uh, illegal activity involving human smuggling, drug trafficking, human trafficking, all sorts of illegal activity that results in those monies going through those companies. So TRAC is a separate organization that was set up as a result of this settlement. Is that right? That's correct. So we are a a nonprofit 501c3 organization. We are governed by the Arizona Attorney General's Office, but we are a separate organization. We assist law enforcement, both federal and state, across the United States in analyzing this data and helping them identify individuals who are exploiting these money service businesses to move illegal proceeds. And so everyone has the sees the benefit of collaborating and sharing information that each of them have obtained through their own legal process in one database that can then be analyzed and shared amongst law enforcement across the country. Liz, how much data are we talking about here? Well, initially, it was several million transactional records through Western Union. But as other money service businesses saw the benefits of having data analyzed, and then the activities of people engaged in illegal activity being shared with them so that they could implement their anti-money laundering efforts and target them towards the activity that we were able to see in the database. The other money service businesses appreciated the efforts that were being conducted by TRAC. So it really proved to be the most effective through collaboration between the money service businesses and law enforcement, with TRAC simply acting as a conduit for that collaboration. What do the money service businesses get out of this cooperation? Under the bank secrecy laws of the United States, they do not have the ability to share amongst each of the companies activity that's taking place within their own business. TRAC has the ability to have a much more a broader perspective of all of the activity that's taking place across all of the companies. But that does allow us to analyze that information and share the findings with not only law enforcement, but also with the money service businesses to identify problematic corridors, particular patterns of activity that we may see where if we're working with law enforcement and we've identified that human traffickers are prolific in a particular area of the United States and that through activity in that particular area, those certain money service businesses can then identify that behavior through their own systems and work to block that activity to prevent the transfer of those illegal proceeds. And so it's been very effective, not only for law enforcement in uh, conducting their investigations, but also for the money service businesses, because they are able to learn from the analytics of a much larger data set than what an individual company might have. And what about law enforcement, Liz? What do they get out of this? Once law enforcement is able to identify a person suspected of being involved in human trafficking, they're able to immediately access via the web 
the track database, they can run that suspected victim of human trafficking in the database and see who they've sent money to. And we have seen instances like that time and time again across the country where law enforcement is able to identify individuals involved in trafficking them because they're able to follow the flow of money where the victim might not been comfortable or willing to name that person once they're able to see the money flow from a victim to the person who's controlling them it makes it unnecessary for the victim to have to name that person themselves you're sparing them the the trauma of testifying against their exploiters by relying on this corroborating evidence from the the transactions data exactly following the flow of money is incredibly successful in identifying other people who would otherwise who would otherwise be unknown to law enforcement. It's been very effective in that way. This approach is now expanding across the US. Law enforcement in other states including Ohio, Illinois, Florida, Nevada, Colorado are all starting to collaborate with us. Track is not the only such effort to use financial data to tackle trafficking. Increasingly, Financial institutions are using this kind of transaction analysis to identify the patterns associated with different types of modern slavery. If we worked at a bank, which is where all the money was, and human trafficking is a crime that is entirely about money, it's entirely about greed, it is different from many other crimes in that it's entirely about the money. And we worked at a bank and we figured if we could find out where that money was and how the trafficking organizations were moving their money, that we could help law enforcement take it away. So that's how we came to decide that we would try to build a financial model to identify transactions and customer attributes and customer characteristics that might be indicative of labor trafficking and sex trafficking. That was Barry Koch, former member of the Financial Sector Commission and former legal counsel at J.P. Morgan Chase's Global Anti-Money Laundering Compliance Program, where he built a groundbreaking transaction analysis program to identify potential human trafficking cases. One of the critical things that we did as we went about it was we partnered with law enforcement. And this concept of partnership between the public sector and the private sector is really quite important. We shared with law enforcement the kind of data that we had, and in many cases, it really surprised them. They were surprised to know how rich our database was in terms of transactional data and customer attributes. They shared with us information, which they have as law enforcement, which we didn't have. And we were able to partner those two things together, the data and the information, to build models and to prove a concept that there was a way to identify customer attributes, transaction attributes, and account attributes that were highly suggestive of trafficking, whether it was transactions occurring at a certain hour of the day, transactions coming from or going to or passing through high-risk geographies, transactions and accounts that had been reported for identity theft, for example, we were able to identify these characteristics and attributes. And we found that they had a very high correlation to actual trafficking cases. And some of our investigations led to victim rescues and asset forfeitures 
and successful prosecutions. Building on that experience, Barry worked with other banks and the Thomson Reuters Foundation to promote the adoption of this approach at scale. I took the model on the road. I spoke about it at conferences, both government conferences, NGO conferences, industry conferences, and we formed a Bankers Alliance in the United States. We formed one in Europe. We formed one in Asia Pacific. All three alliances have published white papers and toolkits, which are resources for investigators in the banks. Is it easier, Barry, using these tools to spot certain kinds of human trafficking? Is it, are there things about, say, trafficking of women for illegal commercial sexual exploitation that make that easier to spot than, say, trafficking of uh, victims into exploitation on fishing boats off Thailand? Or, or are these all equally susceptible to the, the gaze of the surveillance tools that you mentioned? Yeah, that's a great question. They're not equally susceptible to discovery. The scenario you refer to, the Thai fishing boats and the the slavery in the South China Sea is a horrendous situation, and it presents a lot of challenges. Unlike, for example, something more basic where you're monitoring a credit card information at a strip club or at a massage parlor. So there really is a spectrum of difficulty in terms of what you're monitoring. This kind of practice is now sufficiently widespread that financial institutions and regulators have been able to pool their analysis and identify a range of different typologies of how modern slavery shows up in financial institution records. I spoke with Joseph Murray of Scotiabank in Canada. My role is the director of financial intelligence unit and also external partnerships within their financial crimes risk mitigation team. I'm the anti-Jason Bateman. <laughs> and there we go, an Ozark reference. You know, I haven't actually seen it yet. I guess it's one of those things where I come home from work and the last thing I want to see is more money laundering. Uh, but uh, Or in this case, I, I just stepped from my office into my, my bedroom, <laughs> given the situation that we're in. But uh, Ozarks, from what I understand, is a show that follows uh, Jason Bateman, who's a professional money launderer. The role that you're describing that you play at the bank is essentially to spot that kind of activity and then report it. Is that right? That's correct. So it's your job, Joseph, to spot the patterns of suspicious financial activity. How does that work? So there's the, a requirement to report suspicious activity. So what we do is we use a mechanism that's referred to as a suspicious transaction report. In the country of Canada, we have an AML regime that's built around reporting on suspicious transactions. Other countries, such as the United States, report on activity, which uh, would be a little different in terms of how it's articulated and, and how the actual reporting is facilitated. But in Canada, if we see something unusual, whether it's one transaction or a thousand transactions, or sorry, suspicious, I should say, as that's quite different than the term unusual within our world. But if you see something suspicious, no matter if it's one or a thousand transactions, there would be a requirement to report that to our national financial intelligence unit, FinTrack. And uh, we don't need to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that this is confirmed to be related to money laundering, there just needs to be reasonable grounds to suspect that it is. And how do you figure out if something is suspicious? We would apply a methodology that's outlined by, I'm going to use 
my national FIU here in Canada, uh, FinTrack, that uh, goes back that reasonable grounds to suspect. So we really look at three different buckets. The first one is the transactional fact, things that are you cannot dispute the time of a transaction, where a transaction occurred, how much money the transaction was for. And then we start to apply different lenses over top of that. And the second would be contextual activity or contextual understanding, such as what do we know about the customer? What do we know about the client that's facilitating this? Where do they work? How do they conduct themselves financially based on their profile? And the last lens we would apply on that would be intelligence, such as red flags and indicators of common money laundering activity that's been confirmed by entities such as FATF or National FIU or law enforcement. So once you apply all of those, you should have enough to confirm if it's suspicious. However, it doesn't have to be as complex as it sounds. It could really just be that you know one transaction took place from a high-risk jurisdiction to an individual in another country that has no connection seemingly to that country, and uh, the transaction was for an unusual amount. That in as a standalone would be something that could potentially be reportable, but you would want to run through all of those buckets I just described or those lenses to remove any type of gut feeling and actually apply some consistent methodology around how we determine suspicion. Mari says there's growing attention to a range of predicate offenses that give rise to money laundering needs. Another example that has been commonly spoken of for the last 10 years has really been trafficking in human beings, whether it's for sexual slavery, forced labor, or now we're seeing the removal of organs and even uh, child sexual exploitation. All of these, a main driver is profit from those who facilitate it. And those funds eventually and unfortunately find themselves into legitimate institutions for cleansing. I asked him what stood out about human trafficking in financial transactions. So there's common typologies and indicators related to money laundering. And these common indicators would transcend different predicate offenses. However, there are unique indicators to specific predicate offenses. So I'll give you an example of a common indicator. A common indicator would be someone who was potentially depositing less than what they knew there was an automated reporting requirement over a certain dollar amount. So if someone was, let's say, we call this structuring, depositing $9,000 at a time for worry that $10,000 would trigger some type of report to the national FIU. That could be something that could be found within many different predicate offenses and, and, and trying to cleanse those funds. But if you want to get specific to trafficking in human beings, for let's say for sexual exploitation, what you would look for there is uh, potentially you know, activity that was occurring off business hours, transactions that were within an account that were cash-based involving electronic money transfers into the, or email money transfers into the account. And a big one is really no day-to-day living expenses or activity in an account, just money coming in from multiple individuals money going back out to one individual and you don't see anything in there like a, a purchase of from a pharmacy or from a fast food place or for taxes. It's just absent of all of that. So that pass-through activity is another big indicator that something's happening here and most likely the account's being manipulated by a trafficker themselves as opposed to someone who's a victim. So Joseph, are these indicators published or are they proprietary to the banks that develop them? Different countries have different approaches when it comes to publicizing indicators or red flags related to trafficking. Some are 
publishing this activity once vetted and validated for the public to see and for and really the purpose there is to get the reporting entities within a country and in Canada there are about 3000 in other countries there's many more uh, these would include casinos money service businesses virtual currency dealers banks all of which could potentially see this type of activity so the idea of publicizing this is to assist them with their intelligence. But we do see other examples where there's some restriction around the sharing of newer indicators, given how sensitive they are and how you don't want to give a leg up to potential bad guys or, or criminals that are looking to subvert financial institutions as well. So there's a there's justification on either side of that fence. And there are resources available you know, from FATF, from FinCEN, FinTrack, that you can research. One such document, I believe we're going to get into this in a little bit, is the, the publicized the uh, OSCE, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, their toolkit that was published in conjunction with the work that's being done by the FAST initiative that you're a part of, that document's quite unique as it compiles indicators from across the OSCE participating states and looks at them from a macro level, but also tries to look at them as standalone as well too, country to country. And what we did find is that indicators are common across countries or transnationally. And approximately 70% of all the indicators we reviewed, and there's about 600 in total, almost 70% were found to be duplicative across the countries within the OSCE. Now, you published the results of that analysis, Joseph, with the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, or OSCE. What's the name of the report that resulted? The report's uh, Following the Money, a Compendium of Resources and Step-by-Step Guide to Financial Investigations Related to Trafficking in Human Beings. It's quite a mouthful, but we just refer to it as Following the Money. We're going to hear more about that work from two OSCE officials. Before we do, though, I asked Joseph to explain what some of the indicators of trafficking identified in Following the Money look like. So for behavioral what you would potentially see is you're, let's say you're a teller or someone on the front line of a financial institution and someone walks in to open up an account. However, they're in the company of another individual who speaks entirely on their behalf, who holds all of their documents and who really is the one that's uh, not only acting as a, as a translator potentially, but someone who's essentially looks like they're speaking on their behalf without real consent from an individual. And law enforcement's really contributed a bit on this too, is what this looks physically looks like. But that may not be enough because sometimes, you know, you, we're not really equipped, frontline workers not really equipped, but this could raise a red flag to them saying something doesn't really appear right here. And the preceding activity beyond that could result in an unusual transaction report to an FIU such as myself, what we oversee, to look at the transactions that are being facilitated in the account. So that's behavioral. When you get into KYC, someone could open up an account and have, we can notice that there's 10 different individuals living at one address or that the individual's email lines up with unusual advertisements for sexual services related to potentially underage children or underage individuals online, multiple cell phone bills being paid for. So things that are really, we don't really see an individual living on their own. We see some form of, a residence that doesn't seem to really be able to hold multiple individuals, having multiple entities listed there, a credit card with 10 individuals on it to use one credit card. In the situation of forced labor, we could see one individual living at the same address as the company that they're working for. So 
those would be KYC indicators where you would then have someone potentially in a back office reviewing activity that was related to an account opening. So we don't really see financial activity yet. We see more so the documentation process or process uh, of this account opening step. And that would be KYC in the middle that could raise additional red flags. And the final is, which is the one that we really speak about the most, is what do transactions look like that are being facilitated by traffickers, regardless of where they are on the spectrum of trafficking, what do they look like when they start to actually move money around? And that's where things get very unique. And that's where we find that seemingly innocuous things, when combined together, paint a picture that is very unique and that very few people actually transact. So you can have, or transact like, you can have fast food purchases late at night or multiple fast food purchases, which are seemingly innocuous. And then when you combine them with local travel, local hotel stays, pharmaceutical visits multiple times per week, multiple incoming email money transfers, bulk cash withdrawals and cash deposits. When you start putting many of these indicators together, you would then take a potential book of 3 million clients and reduce that down to what we've seen some banks do is they've reduced it down to really 100 potential clients that are transacting this way. And from those 100, they found that 70% were actually reportable and there was no real clear reason why they were transacting this way. And I think that that's something that initially when heard by outsiders, they say, well, I buy fast food, I go to pharmacies, I'm not a trafficker. But when you actually get into it and look at the methodology and the way that these scenarios are created within our transaction monitoring systems, they do start to pick out very unique behavior that has been proven to be connected to trafficking of human beings. So it's quite interesting once you start to create these different thresholds that are triggered to start to uh, have these individuals pop up for review. Yet some analysts sound a more skeptical note. There are some easy wins, if you like. So you often hear people talking about how banks can perhaps identify unusually large cash deposits late at night in ATM drops, let's say, just as an Mm -hmm. example. Mm -hmm. Well, that's probably suspicious activity. It's not necessarily indicative of human trafficking. It could be indicative of drugs or anything else. So I think the banks quite quickly realized that identifying suspicious activity related to human trafficking was very challenging without doing a good deal of extra investigation. And investigations, internal investigations that they conduct on human trafficking means internal investigations that they don't have time to conduct on other issues. And so right. I think what, we, what we've seen is the low-hanging fruit have been grasped. So sex trafficking, for example, is I think something that banks have been able to really engage with energetically and, and have certainly contributed to law enforcement activity there. But slavery on fishing fleets, for example, where the activity is legal, it's just the way it's being done is illegal. Well, that's much more difficult to identify when all you're looking at is financial transactions trying to identify suspicion. That was Tom Keating from the Royal United Services Institute in the UK. In the next episode, we'll hear more from Tom about why banks find it challenging to find labour trafficking in their transactions data. And we'll hear from Professor Jill Costa von Bohut about a pioneering partnership in the Netherlands that's using artificial intelligence to solve that challenge. We'll hear from Valiant Ritchie and Tarana Bagiraba about how the OSCE is promoting those kinds of partnerships in many different countries. 
and we'll hear from Timmy Anagi again about the key role that survivors play in these partnerships. In the meantime, visit us at fastinitiative.org, on Twitter at FincomSlavery, or on LinkedIn's Fast Initiative profile. Send us your feedback and suggestions by email to info at fastinitiative.org. Until next time, thanks for listening. This is a podcast recording by United Nations University Center for Policy Research. The views expressed are those of the speakers.